So Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading is from Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the third chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. So, let's talk about Romans 6. So today, we're thinking about Jesus' uh, baptism. Romans 6, what Romans 6 is going to do is to connect Jesus' baptism, you know, the story where John the Baptist, Baptist baptizes Jesus. 
with our baptisms, uh, the, the day, uh, the moment when you were baptized into Jesus Christ. So Romans 6, and, and Romans 6, honestly, I don't know if you got this while we were reading it or if you, when, when you've read Romans 6 before. I mean, there's just so much here. I wish this is something that we could talk about for several weeks, probably. We're just going to do a sort of a cursory survey type look at what Romans 6 is talking about here. And there's three, three points that I want to make. There's one sort of big overarching point, And then there's two sub points under that talking about, thinking about our baptism in Jesus Christ. Okay. So, uh, Romans 6, uh, let me read it again if I can. Uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's answering the question. Like if sin, if this is, this goes back to Romans chapter five. If you would go back and read a few verses before, like if grace, if the grace of Jesus Christ is so powerful that there's not a single sin that you can commit that can't out sin the power of God's grace, then why don't we just have a good time and sin as much as we want, knowing that God's grace is always going to be running out in front of us, like covering up all the sins that we commit. And then Paul says, well, you actually can't think like that. Verse 2, by no means. The reality is that how can we who died to sin still live in it? Baptism doesn't just forgive your sins. It also places you into a new reality where you have a new way of thinking about the world. You no longer think of sin as something that's sort of enjoyable and, or at least, you know, whatever, it's not that big of a deal because God can forgive it. Now you're thinking of sin in terms of death and destruction. You wouldn't just roll around in it because you think that God's going to forgive it. You would run from it. Uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We, now, now Paul's at different points in Paul, he's going to talk about You've been united to Jesus Christ in, in his resurrection. That means that when Jesus comes back on the last day, he's going to raise you physically from the dead. This is true. Paul likes to talk about that a ton. He's not necessarily talking about that in this text. You can't separate what, you know, resurrection from the dead from our current resurrection life. But he's not talking about the last day here. He's talking about the way that you and I live now. We have been raised in a resurrection like his. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so here's, uh, go back up to verse uh, 3. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? And and the the key word for the next few minutes is that preposition, into. You've been baptized into Christ Jesus. Here's Jesus, the the God-man Jesus. You, When you were baptized, you get pushed inside of him. You get downloaded inside of Jesus. You get plugged into Jesus. You, you and I have been baptized. We are not these free-floating agents roaming around. I mean, you know, in a sense you are. You, you know, you woke up and dressed yourself this morning, most of you, and, and, and you got in your car and you drove. But actually, your fundamental identity 
is not the person who goes to work every day or the, you know, the person who, you know, put on those shoes that you like this morning and come here. Your fundamental identity is you are inside Christ Jesus. What your baptism does is it unites us to Jesus. And this is what Luther's talking about when he talks about the great exchange. Because you live inside of Christ Jesus now, those of you who are believers, every single thing that's good and holy and glorious and fun and wonderful about Jesus belongs to you. And every single thing about you and me that's shameful and scary and depraved and selfish and broken and prone to illness and death, all of that now belongs to Jesus since we've been united to him. And this is the first main point that I want to uh, make this morning is that from Romans 6, is that baptism, the, the main thing, so there's lots of language we have about baptism washes us and things like that. All this is good. We'll talk about these things later. But from Romans 6, the main thing is, is that baptism plugs you into Jesus. Baptism unites us to Jesus. Okay, so if that's the case, um, why is it that, how is it, let me say it this way, how is it that something so like powerful and amazing happens through a little bin of water over here? Now I'm going to repeat a few things that I said when I talked about baptism uh, back when Charlotte was baptized. I'm going to repeat those again now, and I'm going to layer some other stuff on them too. Uh, part of me feels guilty for repeating myself sometimes, and then part of me uh, thinks, no, this is actually a good way for us to learn these things is for me to repeat this stuff. So baptism, ordinary water, how can ordinary water do such great things? And now I'm quoting Luther from the small catechism. Uh, certainly it's not just water, but it's the word of God in and with the water. You know, you, you, it's, it's not the water that does this. It's the water combined with the power of God's word that unites us to us. Ordinary things can be infused with this sort of power to make reality, right? Again, to go back to my sermon uh, about uh, baptism, and you'll remember when I brought Reeve up here to stand with, some of you will remember when I brought Reeve up here with me. Like, so you hug one of your kids or a friend or your spouse, and what is that hug doing? That hug is giving love to the other person. You realize what's happening, right? I mean, you have these two appendages which are growing out of your shoulders. You know, they're flopping around. All they are is this little combination of, you know, carbon matters, muscle mass in there, and some tendons and some ligaments and some bones. And they just sort of flop around. You can use them like you've got, if, you've, if your opposable thumbs are working, you can use them to open your car door or to grab your spoon and feed yourself your uh, cereal in the morning. But they're just ordinary, I mean, they're just body parts, right? You use those body parts to give, actually give love to people that are close to you. How does this work? How can, how can, how can arms do such great things? Well, certainly not just arms, but your arms mixed with your desire for another person, mixed with your compassion for another person, your arms mixed with affection and devotion and commitment to another person does great things. You see what your arms are doing? Your arms, it's not a psychological trick. Your arms aren't just like giving the impression of love. Your arms combined with your desire to give love, with your feelings of love, with your decision to give love, actually give, really, really give love. This is why I to go back to what I said about Reeve and at Charlotte's baptism. Like, God tells us that he loves us here. I'm going to say this to you out loud right now. God loves you guys. 
That, that, that sound just came out of my mouth. Empowered by God, that sound just came out of my mouth and bounced through sound waves and went into your head. And most of you, your brains process that as the information that God loves me. The Holy Spirit's going to take that information and convince you of its truth. Deep down inside, a lot of you know that God loves you. God also in baptism is going to wrap his arms physically around you to say, I love you. It's not a psychological trick. It's not a way to think about God's love. It's actually like the arms in a hug. It's communicating God's love to you. That's how baptism unites you to Christ, because God wants it to. Right? If, if you and I agreed that a handshake means that we love each other, we could shake hands and our hands would communicate love to each other. Combined with our love for each other, the actual hands would communicate love. God has decided, I don't, why did he choose water? I mean, don't ask me. Water's pretty ordinary. I don't know why, but he did. He chose water and he says that in your baptism, he has plugged you into Jesus. You've been united to Christ so that all good things of Jesus belong to you now and all bad things about you and me belong to him. Now, what does this mean in Romans 6? That's the main point, okay? That's, and if, if you don't think, if you don't think about anything else in the sermon, I think that Romans 6 has done its job. The rest of it just sort of falls out from there. It's sort of logical steps. For Paul, there are two big things that you're, you, you, unification, unity with Christ, you're being united with Christ does. The first thing is, being united with Christ means that you have now died. Okay? Look at verse 3, uh, which we were just reading. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. Look down at verse 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus. In or- that, that word crucified with. So look about, I'm sorry, let me, let's do this real quick here. Uh, Verse 3, all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. That's actually just one word. This doesn't really make a whole whole lot of difference, but just to point out to you how, for for Paul, how closely you are identified with Christ now that you've been baptized. It's actually just one word. You've been co-buried. Same thing down in verse 6 that we just read. Um, We know that our old self was co-crucified. In Greek, it's co-crucified in Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, might be killed, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, so, so follow, follow Paul's logic here with me, if you will. For Paul, the penalty for sin is death. So what God says to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the day that you rebel against me, you will die. And they rebelled against God, and he was gracious enough to say, I'm not going to kill you today. I'm going to create space for this plan that I've got to rescue you. He forgave him and said, I'm going to push your death back, and then I'm going to rescue the world through your offspring. Paul's going to say the exact same thing here. At the end of chapter, some of you will know this verse, at the very end of chapter 6, the chapter we've been reading here, he's going to say, the wages of sin is death. What we get for sinning against God is death. Some, someday your heart's going to stop beating. You're going to get terminally ill, or you're going to be involved in some sort of accident, or you're just going to die in your sleep of old age or whatever. And that, the, the reason why you're going to die is because you and I are being punished for sinning against him. The wages of sin is death. That's the first move. However, second move, you, listen close, this is important. You were killed already when Jesus was killed. You have been crucified with Jesus so that the body of sin might die. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. That's the third point. 
is that if you've already died, if you've been united with Christ, and Christ died on the cross, and so in Christ you've died already, Galatians 2 says this as well, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, that means that you've the price for your sin has already been paid. The wages of your sin, which is your death, have already been, you've already died. Wait a minute, I haven't died yet, I'm sitting here breathing. Well, well yes, there's this sort of like, you're living in an already not yet stage. There is a future physical death for you if Jesus doesn't return. But in ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of your baptism, you're already dead. You've already been crucified with Christ. And so you no longer can be killed again. That's the fourth said. You have no more sins on your account. Your sins have already been paid. A dead person has already paid the price for their sins. This is what Jesus' death does for you, is it drags your death out of, the, out of your future and takes it and sticks it in Jesus' body on the cross 2,000 years ago so that the price for our sin is already gone. If you've been united with Christ, you're already dead inside of Christ. Now, that's kind of a, maybe, maybe a lot of you haven't heard it said that way before. It's kind of a fancy way of what we already believe and what most of you who are Lutherans are already really familiar with, this notion that your sins have been paid for, that in Jesus Christ, you're no longer guilty of any single thing. Right? Now, there's another step here, though, which most of us, which, which a lot of us stop at this part where our sins are paid for, and we don't move to the next step because it's actually hard for us to do it. And so, just speaking for myself, I like to stop at that part where my sins have been paid for because I've been crucified with Christ, and I'm no longer guilty of anything, and not go to step three, which is actually Paul's main point in Romans 6, which is this, and this is the third point, is that if you've been united with Christ... You've been crucified with him and therefore died with him, but that means you've also been raised with him to new life. Okay, let's look down at verse um, uh, 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, he lives to God. So you also, guys, must consider yourselves dead to sin. We've already talked about that. But also... Alive to, Christ, alive to God and Christ Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, he filled you up because, you're, because you live inside of him and he's filled up with it. He filled you up with new life. Resurrection power. The guarantee that not only will you physically and spiritually live forever after the resurrection, but also the guarantee that right now you have the power of Christ living inside of yourself to say no to sin, to say no to the world, to say no to the enemy. That exists inside of ourselves. So let's follow Paul's logic along here. Uh, verse 9. Jesus rose from the dead and is now indestructible. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus no longer has overhanging over him the weight of the sins of the world. There's no more Garden of Gethsemane moment where Jesus is like, I can't do this. Father, take this cup from me. I will do what you tell me to do. I will do what you want me to do, but I do not want to go through this. Those moments are past for Jesus. He's already died for all of our sins. He's moved on to that. He's ascended to his father, and now he is completely orientated towards his father. He lives a life to God, and we are with him because we're inside of him. He has pulled us up into that life to God as well, which means that our Garden of Gethsemane moments are already over. Our struggles with sin in a real sense, are already over. We've moved on from that. We've passed up death. We've passed up slavery. And now we live in newness of life. 
And now I hope that some of you are saying right now, but that doesn't actually sound like the way I live my life. I feel like I struggle with brokenness all the time. I struggle with my selfishness all the time. Struggle with sin and depravity and like bad thoughts and wishing evil on people who've never done me any harm at all. And being upset when I don't get what I want and all these things. I don't, I feel like I am not living the resurrection life. But here's the deal is that we struggle now in our surface realities, our emotions, our thoughts, our relationships, our jobs, being frustrated with the physical bodies and like sickness and stuff like that. But you have to remember that the ultimate reality is that you've been liberated from all that, not liberated from your body. Your body is good. Jesus is determined to fix your body and raise it from the last day, but liberated from sin and brokenness. And whether you feel like it or not, you are. Now, I said this last week. Actually, let me do this real quick and then I'll make this point. If we could, if we could keep reading, our reading today stops in verse 11. You can see that in the bulletin. But if we kept reading, we would see some good stuff. I'm going to read this to you. Let not sin, this is the very next line, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. You don't have to do this. Unbelievers have to do this. Unbelievers are trapped by their own sin. I'm not saying that there aren't unbelievers who are nice. There aren't unbelievers who do good things. But they do those things in their own sinful cycles because they have not been liberated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from those sins. You, however, have. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Because, listen to this, Sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will have no dominion over you. You are no longer slaves to sin, since you are not under law, but under grace. Since you have been plugged into Jesus, and so have been crucified with him, and now raised from the dead with him, you are no longer slaves. So why is it, back to this question here then, why is it that you feel like you are? Why is it that we act like we are? I said last week, do you, do you guys remember this? And, and from Isaiah 60, the image was light and dark. God has lit your worlds up so that you can see. If you can't see, when we do live in darkness, it's not because God is somehow absent or because there's something deficient in the gospel that we can't, it's not working for us. If you're living in the dark, it's because you have your eyes closed. Other people have no choice. Those who have not had their hearts turned to Jesus live in the dark, however they feel about it. You and I, when we live in the dark, it's because we willingly choose to do so. Let's transfer that metaphor to Romans chapter 6. You are not a slave. You are no longer a prisoner to sin. You've been, you've been released by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are living in the jail cell right now, if I'm living in the jail cell right now, it's because I've chosen to. The door's actually unlocked. Christ has freed me. I could push, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I could push the door open and walk out whenever I want. Why are we not living in his resurrection power? Why have we been so blinded that we think that we indeed are trapped by sin and slaves to our own desires and slaves to the enemy and slaves to the whims of this world? We are not. You have been united to Jesus Christ. And now everything about him, all of his life, all of his glory, all of his power, all of his freedom, now live and work and are trying to bubble up and flow out of you. Embrace that. Live in that freedom. Live in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen.